Uh, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3, or Matthew chapter 4. Uh, we're resuming our series through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we're actually reaching one of the really cool parts where Jesus' sermons begin, or at least the content of his sermons. Um, but we've got a couple, couple things before that. So Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 to 22. Again, I'd say please stand in honor of the word, but I mean, your couches are probably that comfortable that you're not going to get up. It would be awkward to stand in front of your TV, so I don't blame you. Let's go ahead and read. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him, and going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, incline our hearts to you this morning. Help us to recognize the the power of your word that you, you speak and we listen and you conform our hearts. May we listen today not just trying to gain in knowledge or gain in facts, but may we listen in worship of you. May we be moved to prayer and moved to repentance where it needs to happen. Uh, but most of all, Lord, may we delight in you, our God and our Savior. Amen. Um, if I keep clipping like that, Garnet, just turn the, uh, the trim down, but then boost the mains. Be the only... Well, one of the mains is already all the way up. Blast me. All right. <laughs> all right. I turned on the red mic as well, and I'm trying to balance it. Okay. The, uh, <laughs> um, I, I, I did sound for too many years, and I understand your pain. <laughs> um, all right. So, um... When, when we read these verses, we, we, see, we see some pretty profound truths. And I've heard a lot of sermons on these particular verses, typically in a topical fashion, not necessarily in the, the story context. And I'm going to kind of go through the, the story order of, of these encounters. Um, but, uh, but before that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to confess to you, I am a sucker for reality TV. Um, I, I, I was always a documentary watcher, so when you watch all those documentaries on Africa and you see the, the cheetahs chasing the gazelles and the, the lions taking down the wildebeest and all that, I mean, I, would, I, I lived off those. Um, the ocean documentaries, all that stuff. Uh, so when I say reality TV, I don't actually mean like um, Jersey Shores, which praise God I have never seen an episode of. Uh, but I mean, like the, the shows where you learn something, right? Like like watching Bear Grylls and uh, and running wild with Bear Grylls when he takes takes some poor uh, sucker celebrity out into the middle of nowhere and teaches them how to survive. Um, like those are the shows I watch, and my family lived on those. We watched those like every Thanksgiving. It was uh, it was uh, either Pumpkin Chunkin, which if you don't know what that is. Um, Bless you. Uh, either either Pumpkin Chunkin or, or, or a Man vs. Wild uh, like um, marathon or something like that. We'd always have that on, and we would try. I would try and have that on over sports because I'm just not a sports guy. Uh, 
Uh, one of my favorite shows, though, that I've marginally kept up with is Wicked Tuna. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I'm no fisherman, so that's why I like watching it. Um, I, but, I, but I've learned a lot from watching it. I, I've, learned, I've learned how, uh, how, how you bait and wait. Right, like you, you set the bait on the hook, you throw it in, and then like what for for the the audience? I mean, what only seems like thirty seconds before you know all of a sudden the the rod starts reeling. Right, um, it's not the way it is in real life, and I recognize it, but I like the drama of the show. Um, I've you know learned a lot about chumming water, and everybody every, everybody has a different technique to it. Right, like how they're going to cut up the chum and how they're going to put it in. Um, I've learned. The effort put in for a single but humongous fish um, and the disappointment of failure when the line snaps, when it gets tangled. I mean, you see that, like you see the reaction of the people um, and like that fishing, the way of fishing is just, I mean, I think it's cool, man. Like, I'm, I, again, I'm no fisherman. I've never been out on the ocean. I've done uh, trap fishing in a trap farm. And I've fished on a river before, didn't catch a thing, but, but it's fun to learn from that. But that type of fishing is actually foreign to our text. So like the idea of bait and weight is not something that we really have when we approach these verses. Um, so let's, let's, let's go through our text. And again, I'm going to kind of hit it in the narrative style. Um, to see what, what Jesus is saying to his apostles and what that has to say to us. Um, so I broke this down into, into three sections. Uh, Jesus sees, Jesus calls, and they respond. So Jesus sees, Jesus calls, they respond. I'm going to give some background too. So starting with Jesus sees. First, Jesus sees Andrew and Peter fishing. Now, the Gospel of Matthew doesn't give us a lot of context here. It just kind of starts off saying uh, that, you know, he's walking, he's strolling down the Sea of Galilee, and he sees um, these two brothers, and he calls out to them. But there's actually a little bit more to the story. Um, Andrew was actually a disciple of John the Baptist. Um, and we, we read, if we go to John chapter 1... Verse 35, we read that Andrew actually left John the Baptist to go follow Jesus. Um, and he dragged along Simon, his brother. And um, let's go ahead and actually read that, if I could turn not to Luke and not to Acts. Uh, so, so John chapter 1, starting in verse 35. Uh, so... Jesus gets baptized in, in John's narrative. So John's, John's trying to take us through some more, some different styles of pinnacle points uh, than Matthew does. So, so Jesus gets baptized. Um, John, John the Baptist actually uh, calls, calls him out in a different way. But starting in verse 35, the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. So two. Uh, and he looked at Jesus, and, he, and as he walked by, I'm sorry, I'm going to try that again. And he, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. 
So they came and saw, saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. I mean, it was late in the afternoon. Uh, one, of, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, or Cephas, uh, which means Peter. Um, which, meaning that's the Cephas would be the Aramaic or the Hebrew way of saying the name Peter, even though it sounds nothing alike. Um, so there's two disciples of John the Baptist here. One of them being Andrew, and the other one being unnamed. Uh, chances are, and presumably, the the other apostle is at, or the other the other disciple of John the Baptist, sorry, uh, was John, the apostle John. Um, just just considering the firsthand account that John gives us, so those events would have occurred about a year before what we come to in Matthew chapter four. Um, so obviously. As we get to this part of the story, uh, Andrew and Peter and James and John have gone back home to uh, to go serve serve in their profession and do what do what they did. Right? Um, we don't know why. We don't know. We, we don't. We don't. We don't know anything. We just know that there's some sort of a time between these two events, and um, obviously God doesn't care to tell us, so I doubt it was any sort of a problem, because that would have come up later, that would have been mentioned later in the narrative. But they returned home, they resumed their jobs um, with, with their father for James and John, but that actually would have given them time to think about becoming Jesus' disciples. If Andrew and John were, were, Jesus, were John the Baptist's disciples, they would have had an understanding of what it was like to follow someone, to learn from them. But Jesus sees... Andrew and Simon, or Andrew and Peter, and then James and John, and one of them is fishing, one of them is mending their nets, um, the, and, and just, just to make clear, uh, James and John were on the boat mending their net, okay? They were, they were net fishing. The, the, the common way of fishing at the time was casting nets, your net breaks, you gotta mend it, um, so, so they were all four of them were fishermen. So when we hear Jesus's words to Andrew, to yeah, to Andrew and Peter, the follow me and I will make you fishers of men. They, that's probably what he said to James and John as well. We'll hit that in a, in a little bit. Um, so, so, but, but notice in that term, fishers of men. Um, that, that was pretty clever of Jesus to use that phrase because it, it, it reaches into their current profession and tells them, hey, I'm going to, you know, follow me and your profession will kind of remain the same. It was clever of Jesus and it, and it was true. Um, so he probably said that to both sets of folks. So Jesus sees Andrew and Peter and James and John doing their thing and then he calls, Jesus calls. So notice here who's doing the calling, right? Jesus is the one doing the calling. Uh, at this time in the first century, traveling Jewish rabbis were pretty common. 
um, it, it, it had become its, its whole uh, uh, kind of enterprise almost. Uh, the, the rabbis would go around, they'd share their teachings publicly. That's one of the reasons Jesus had so many crowds gather around him is they're, they're like, oh, look, a new rabbi. And they go and listen to the new teaching. And a lot of them turned away. A lot of them left. Most of them left. But, but, but in Jesus' time, the rabbis would go around and they'd be looking for students uh, who wanted to follow them and pass along their teachings. They, they were very concerned about their teachings being passed down to a new student who would then pass that on, and their name would be on that, right? That, 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 that rabbinic teaching would be on uh, whenever, whenever somebody would talk about their teaching. And they, they, they had actually become, a lot of these guys had become like celebrities. Um, even the Apostle Paul, when he's defending himself to, to the Jews in Jerusalem uh, who were accusing him in Acts 22, uh, Paul actually says that he was a disciple of Gamaliel, that he had studied under Gamaliel. So uh, 22.3, I am a Jew, this is Paul speaking, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this, in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are to this day. So these folks knew who Gamaliel was, man. Gamaliel, pretty famous. Uh, so, so, the, so Paul was appealing to them based on a particular teacher. His teaching was well known. So these, these rabbis would travel, uh, they'd pick up students. Sounds a lot like what Jesus did with getting the apostles, except there's a little bit of a difference. Um, the difference is between Jesus calling the apostles or Jesus calling these individuals is that typically a, somebody who wanted to be a disciple of a rabbi had to approach the rabbi first and ask if they could be the disciple. They're, they're, the, the student had to request permission from the teacher. Um, and contrary to popular understanding, men in the first century, mankind, people, men and women, were not uneducated. They weren't just all stupid fishermen. Um, a lot of times we read something like the letter of Peter and we say, how can somebody so uneducated know so much about Greek? That's a, that's a common complaint that you hear from people who don't know much about the first century, honestly. Uh, the, the people in the first century would go to synagogue, which just meant a teaching place. They would go to synagogue and they would learn two languages. Two. I speak one. I speak English. And not really that fluently. So the men in the first century, people in the first century, would know two languages. They would know their native tongue and they would also know Greek. Because Greek was the common language at the time. Some other native tongues would have, would have been Aramaic, would have been Latin, uh, would, would have been some of the Germanic, the Slavic uh, languages as Rome spread north. But they would also learn Greek, which eventually became replaced with Latin. But, but Greek was the common language. If you wanted to go trading in the cities, which fishermen did, they would catch and sell their catch, uh, they would have to know Greek in case a foreigner came. So, uh, people in the first century um, could read and write in Greek and in their native tongue, but they, they had to prove themselves to the rabbis. They had to prove themselves worthy of carrying on the teachings. But 
In our text, that's not what we see. What we see is Jesus actually going specifically to these four individuals and calling them and asking them to follow him. That is not what we run into in the first century, at least in terms of, of, of the order of operations of things. So th- this, this means, again, that these four have returned to their daily lives after, after being disciples of Jesus for some amount of time. They've left Jesus, and now they're doing their daily thing. But at this point, instead of wanting to serve Jesus and going to him and asking permission, Jesus went to them. To any other rabbi, their leaving would have simply uh, shown that they were not worthy to be students. It would have shown that they, 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 were, um, they, they were traitors, that they had abandoned the teacher. And the teacher would have just gone out and found a more zealous student, one who was more concerned with actually passing down his teaching But that's not the way Jesus did it. That's not the way Jesus does anything. Listen, Jesus goes after the ones he intends to save. Uh, He also goes after the ones he intends to have serve his kingdom. That's how Jesus does it. And as we'll see later, Jesus actually isn't so concerned about his own teachings like other rabbis. He's more concerned with with. Uh, delighted duty into his kingdom and and to his father, Uh, a devotion. When we say that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship, that's kind of right, uh, if we mean modern terms. The the Latin word religio means devotion. It means a devotion to a deity. So it's both religion and relationship, as long as we use classical terms, classical definitions. So we have a devotion to Jesus, but... Jesus is the one that comes after us. So what specifically does Jesus say? I mean, I've mentioned it. But when Jesus calls these four individuals to himself, uh, he, he says that they will become fishers of men. And that's kind of a, kind of a weird way of saying it. Um, but, but the way Matthew words it is really clever. He says that they were casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen, right? And then Jesus says to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. It's really fishermen of, of men, if we're going to translate specifically, but that sounds weird. It sounds more poetic to say it this way. Um, so, so fishermen catch, catch fish to consume them. They catch fish to sell them off. They catch fish for a livelihood. That's not what Jesus means. (laughs) The the goal of the Christian is not to go catch the souls of men and then sell them off to the highest bidder. Um, But what Jesus is is saying here, uh, probably, is is the method. Uh, Fishermen at the time would take boats into the sea. And the Sea of Galilee, it was big. It created its own weather patterns, kind of like Lake Michigan. I mean, I spent years in Chicago, right? You have what's called lake effect. You have lake effect snow, where the weather pattern is created over the lake that's so cold that it creates a a bunch of snow. And then Chicago gets hit way harder than everywhere around it, or at least further, further west. You have lake effect sun, you have lake effect fog, 
much like you have in the sea when you go to the coast here and you got that fog in the morning. That fog is created over the ocean and then it drifts onto the land. So the Sea of Galilee was kind of like that. It would create its own weather patterns. It would create essentially sea wind and sea, sea uh, storms and sea everything. Sea probably, I mean, not sea snow. It's probably too warm. But you'd, you'd have a, a, an effect there and there were giant waves and it was a pretty treacherous place. So they would take these, not dinky little boats, but they would take boats that were really big enough just to carry a couple fishermen and their catch and their net. Nothing like you see on Wicked Tuna. Uh, they, they would take these huge cast nets, that's actually what it was called, it was a cast net, it was basically a big net that had weights, probably rocks, tied all around it and a rope tied to it. They'd throw it into the sea. They'd let it go down as far as it can. And then when they pull, it brings the weights together, turns the net upside down, and then brings the catch up. But, uh, but, but here's the thing. Wet rope is heavier than dry rope. It was hard work bringing in those nets. And especially if there were fish in it, fish aren't always light. So you're dragging that thing up. You're trying not to tip your boat over. It is arduous work. And then here's the other thing. You don't always get a catch. They didn't have sonar to tell you when the fish were, were nearby. They didn't, they didn't have anything. The Sea of Galilee is actually pretty, uh, pretty clear to a point, but it has a depth that, that gets dark. You can't see where the fish are. In the ocean, sometimes you can see where the, the gulls are trying to, trying to sit and eat the fish at the top, but that's not always the case. So what fishermen would do is they'd try to go anticipate where there were eddies, where, there were, uh, where, where the, the current and the, the tide were kind of creating these whirlpool effects that the fish would get trapped in. They'd try and remember the locations and they'd throw the nets over there and hope that they found something. Sometimes the net would get pulled out from them because of the strength of the eddy. It, it just, it wasn't, it wasn't an easy job. So when Jesus says, hey, I'm going to make you fishers of men, chances are they knew what that meant, that it wasn't going to be an easy task. Being a fisher of men um, means that you're a fisher for souls. These four were going to be fishers for souls. Unlike modern-day fishing, we can't sound the depths of a person's soul. We can't see whether or not a person is going to, going to stir. We don't. But, but being a fisher of men means that you're going to proclaim not just the teachings of Jesus, but the gospel, the good news. Jesus wasn't so concerned, again, about just his message getting out. He wasn't just a good teacher. He wanted the gospel to go out. We, can't, we don't have instruments to see uh, who's, who's receptive to the gospel of Jesus or who's hostile toward it. We can try and see what happens. We also don't really have instruments to see who's saved or unsaved. That's the scary part, at least for me. Because when I'm talking to someone, I can't tell you the number of times, first of all, it's super awkward where I'm talking to someone and I'm telling them how I'm thanking God for something um, 
or uh, or somebody's bemoaning their their situations to me. This typically would happen at a coffee shop. I'd be talking to the barista while I'm waiting for for them to make an americano for me. I typically choose an americano because it takes a little bit more time than just filling a coffee cup. Um, and then I'd get to maybe chat with the barista for five seconds, and then I just. Um, I, I just I wouldn't give a gospel presentation, but I'd show how the gospel has an effect. Maybe my day is awful. How's their day? Um, and then it's really awkward when they're like, yeah, I go to that church down the street. Because here I am thinking that they're not saved because they work at Starbucks. And only, only heathens work at Starbucks. Um, that's not true. <laughs> but it's really awkward. But then I have a point of contact. This person is now a brother or sister, hopefully in the Lord. So what, what, we, what we see when Jesus says, hey, I'm going to make you fishers of men, we see that, that followers of Jesus got to cast the net of the gospel. They got to do the hard work of, of, of pulling the net up. Um, really, the hard work is prayer, continued compassion on that person, and seeing if God's given them a catch. So that's the thing. When you don't know, you just throw the net. And when you reel it up and there's nothing in it, it's disappointing. But, but if there is something in it, it's not you that did it. God gets all the glory for the catch of souls. God gives us also the strength to persevere through his Holy Spirit. We didn't do anything. We just threw the net, man. So lastly, so we got, we got Jesus sees specifically these four Jesus calls specifically these four, and he says uh, that they're going to become fishers of men. But there's also another aspect to this, that, that they respond. I, I, lo I love how it's said here, because there, when you think about the fact that there's been a, about a year in between John chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 4 of the meeting of these, these, end of, uh, of these folks to Jesus, Right? You, you see this, this little glimmer of, of distinction. Um, so uh, they're wa Jesus is walking, sees Andrew and Simon uh, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen, verse 19. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Verse 20, immediately they left their nets and followed him. And then 21, and going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father. So they're actually with, with dad, mending their nets. And he called them, again, presumably saying, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Verse 22, immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Listen, God's call is intentional. This means that if you're a Christian, God is the one who called you. You're not a Christian by your own power, your own strength, your own merit. I mean, if, if, when we look at the Old Testament, it has to be a spotless lamb. Can you say that you're a spotless lamb? No amount of bleach could ever whiten the wool around us. You're not a Christian by your own power or merit, but you've been sought out personally by the Lord of heaven and earth. He went specifically to James and John. He's not simply walked through geography to, to find you, but he's traversed time itself 
to ensure that his good news has reached you at the exact time he intended and had the effect he intended. He saves. He saves. We respond, but he saves. So God's call is intentional, and that should be a comfort. Another comfort is that God's call is powerful. Again, there's, there's been a year between, and yet Andrew, Peter, James, and John leave Jesus, return to their normal lives. He comes and finds them, and then immediately they abandon their stuff and go to follow him. They left everything behind, everything their boat, their nets, and do you, I mean, think about it. How much time do you think it takes to put a net together? I mean, they're winding their own cord for the nets. Maybe they're purchasing it, but then they had to work to get the money that allows them to purchase the cord. And that's a lot of work, man. And their boat? Yeah, I bet they put a lot of time into making that thing work. And I don't mean work like turning a motor on. I mean work like not sinking, like staying together. And then James and John leave their own dad. Imagine the words that Zebedee had as they were walking out on his work. I can only, I, I can hear my own dad's voice right now. Hey, we're not finished. Get back here. But they followed Jesus. They went, they went after him because he called them. God's call is powerful. Listen, not, it's not the case for everyone that we have to leave everything behind. But really what, what, what that means when we leave everything behind is that we consider God's call of greater value than anything else we have. Money, possessions, family, God is of more value. Jesus is of more value than what we have. I mean, even Peter's, Peter's house became a home base for operations in Galilee. Uh, Peter's mother-in-law gets sick, and Jesus goes and heals her. But, but Peter still followed Jesus wherever he went. And, and think about it like this, too. That was just one unremarkable day. I mean, they woke up, they ate breakfast, they, uh, they, well, I think they ate breakfast. It's not in the text, so I can't tell you that. But I assume they ate breakfast. I assume they got ready for the day, whatever that meant. You know, shave, shower, probably not. But, uh, but put on a pair of fresh clothes, probably not. Uh, <laughs> but, but they got ready for their day, whatever that looked like for them. They went out fishing just like it was a normal, I don't know, Tuesday afternoon, Tuesday morning. And they got out there, probably lost their favorite spot. Uh, probably had to go to a different spot. There was already somebody camped there. It's just an average day. Maybe they got there first. Maybe they got their favorite spot. But then one day, Jesus calls them. And they follow. That's the story of every person's salvation. Every single person's salvation. It's not like you woke up one day and thought, hmm, I think I'm going to be a Christian. No, Jesus calls, and it's effectual, it's, it's powerful, it does what it intends to do. And actually, there's a huge comfort in that. That makes me think of people who are exposed to Christianity, maybe their whole lives, and then they leave it. 
They go make a life for themselves. They do their own thing. They do whatever they think they want to do. Um, but then at a later date, Jesus calls them to salvation. And they, they're able to see the beauty of the, of the grace of God, that he would send his own son to die for our sins. They see that beauty and they respond. God opens their eyes and they, 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 they fall into Christ's arms. They cling to his cross. Listen, there's always hope. If you've got that family member, there's always hope. As long as they're breathing, there's always hope. God can save whomever he chooses to save. And I, I, I'm, I'm running long, so I'm going to summarize this. But, you know, when I was saved, I was saved when I was 17. I'd heard the gospel at least once every single year because we went to church on Christmas and Easter. I heard the gospel at least once every year, time after time after time after time again. And you know what? It wasn't sweet. It wasn't sweet to my soul. It wasn't sweet to my heart. It just wasn't until that one day. That one day when I heard the gospel and I heard it clearly and it pierced into my heart and my mind and my soul sprung to grasp salvation in Christ. It's the story of everyone's salvation. It wasn't the atmosphere that I responded to. I was at a camp, so I was at a Christian camp, but, uh, but, but the days leading up to it were terrible. I got in trouble every single day. I hated it. I'm allergic to the outdoors for the most part, and, and my allergies were messed up, and I, I just wanted to go to sleep and be alone. I didn't want to be with anyone. The days leading up to it were really not that good. Actually, there's a funny story about how I nailed a poor little middle schooler in the face with a water balloon, and she had to go to the nurse's station. I didn't do it on purpose, but I got in huge trouble for it. Um, I mean, it was, it was just bad. Every day was bad. But then one day, one day I woke up, did my normal stuff at this camp, only been there a few days, went to chapel, which I hated, and I heard the clear call of Jesus Christ in the gospel. There's always hope, because God saves whomever he, he chooses to save. So what are we to do? What's, what, what, what's the implication of this text? We see Jesus calling, and we see them responding. Jesus seeks them out, he, he calls them specifically, and they follow precisely when he intends for them to follow, which was immediately. So what are we to do? Listen, we have, to, we, we, we have a responsibility to recognize that we are God's catch. Somebody threw the net of the gospel at you. They threw it into the depths of the darkness of your soul. But God is the one that put you in the net, and he pulled you out. We also have a responsibility then to cast the same net of the gospel. Listen, we, we throw the net again into the darkness of people's souls. Whether it's a family, a stranger, or, or anybody, anybody. We need to be casting that net. If you are not casting that net, you are missing out on a requirement of being a fisher of men that Jesus gave his own apostles and he later gives 
to all of us through the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. We should be evangelizing. And I don't mean that as like a, a scary, hard, awful thing. I mean very clearly, it's good news. We tell people. We tell people because it's good news. Knowing that your job is just to throw the net should be freeing. It should be encouraging, and it too should be a comfort. You are not responsible for people's salvation. That's hard for me with my kids, man. I'm responsible for whether or not they're eating dirt, for whether or not they're, they're, they're breaking stuff. I'm responsible for a lot of them, but to know that I'm not responsible for their salvation, I just... I have the responsibility to keep casting the net of the gospel, to raise them in love and admonition of the Lord, to, 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 to proclaim his goodness to them. That's actually freeing. It's freeing because I don't have to, I don't have to make them do it. I don't have to grab my kids, put their head in my arm and go, you know, say Jesus. I don't have to do that. So our responsibilities is that we have to recognize we're God's catch and that we have to cast the net to the gospel. But we also have the responsibility to remember that God gets all the glory. I've heard people time and time again uh, talk about the people they've saved. That sentence has some grammatical issues. God gets all the glory. Listen, it's Jesus' call who's in that's intentional and that's powerful and produces a response. That's the sermon summary. Sermon summary of this is that Jesus' call to, to service and salvation is intentional, powerful, and produces a response. When you cast the net and it comes up empty, God gets all the glory because he didn't intend for that person to be saved, at least at that point. But when you come up, when you, when you have the catch, God gets all the glory. You, you, you just cast the net. But he's the one that puts the soul in it. He's the one that puts the man in it. What a comfort that is. Because if I had to cast a net into, in, into the deep, dark seas, not knowing if there was fish down there, and then one time there is, the joy I'd have, the pride I'd have, but it's not, it's not mine. I didn't do it. All I did was cast the net. Let's pray. Lord, you are the glorious one who puts the souls of men in the nets of the gospel. I pray that you would give us the strength and the boldness to throw it, uh, to reel it in, most of us are pretty good at throwing the net. We're not really that good at trying to reel it in. I'll, I'll, I'll confess that's me mostly, most of the time. I'm happy sowing the seed, happy watering the garden, but when it comes harvest time, <laughs> I like to back off. So I pray, Lord, that you would give me and give us the strength and the power and the, the joy to proclaim your good news, to do it intentionally, but knowing that it's your intentions that matter to do it powerfully with strength, but knowing that it's your strength that does it, and remembering that, that, again, God, you're the one. You're the one that initiates the response. Your effectual call 
I thank you that I've received it, that I've heard it, that I've responded to it. But it was you that did it, Lord. You are wonderful. In Jesus' name, amen. Remember your salvation this week, saints. Remember that Jesus is the one who called you to salvation, that he sought after you personally, that he intended for you to be saved, that he is a good God who looks for his lost sheep. And cast that net of the gospel. Don't, don't forget to do that. In social distancing, it's pretty impossible. Uh, it's weird to proclaim the gospel with a mask on. Uh, but at the same time, don't neglect that, that joy, that, that delightful duty that the Lord gives us. Go in peace, saints.